Thanks for listening to RQ's Device Love Podcast. You're about to listen to an audio only version of our weekly show, Device Love Live. If you're interested in having your questions answered live on a future episode, visit rqteam.com to see what topics are coming up and to register. We hope you enjoy this panel discussion, and if you do, please subscribe. Let's start with how do you know if your device is categorized as wet or non-wet? Does the regulation spell it out? Um, you want to start, John? Sure. So um, I think maybe there's three places to look primarily. The first is obviously in the MDR. That's where that um, terminology is somewhat introduced. And it's introduced in the perspective of class three and implantable devices that are exempted from clinical investigations. So there's a very specific list of devices, and I have it up here, like that screws, wedges, plates, wires. So if your device is one of those, well, then I think you can make a good argument that you're a well-established technology. But then also within Article 61, it says, and similar devices to those. And so... Um, that's where it leaves the door open to other types of devices. However, it doesn't really, in the MDR, it doesn't go into any details about what those similar devices are. Uh, the next place that I think you can look for information on well-established technologies is in a notified body position paper on the classification of spinal devices. And within that, there was some uncertainty as far as really what they meant by classification of certain spine devices because of the terminology used. So in that position paper, they basically provide categories in a decision tree as far as whether or not you're a well-established technology or whether or not you're a non-well-established technology. And so I think you can look there, even if you're not a spinal device, just to try to understand how they're thinking about well-established technologies. Um, and then the last place uh, to look is the new MDCG uh, guidance 2020-6 on sufficient clinical evidence. So that even expands it further and has these four criteria that you basically need to meet for well-established technology. One is basically a simple, common, stable design, an established safety pro uh, profile, established performance profile, and then a long uh, history on the market. And so it basically says if you meet those four categories, you may be considered a well-established technology. And I think the argument you have, or how strong your argument or robust it is, Depends if you're on that list in the MDR, you have a really good argument. If you're on that, it, then it kind of goes down. And so there's much more questions as far as whether or not you're well-established based on that definition, because there's more nuance in that definition um, in MDCG-6. John, miss anything? Anything to add anybody? Okay, so let's get into more specifics on that. What does it mean specifically to have a long history on the market? As you just said, John, what does that mean? Um, well, I, I think there, who knows, right? <laughs> because it doesn't <laughs> specify it. Uh, so I think it's open to interpretation. <laughs> I think the most rigorous and strict way to look at it is if you were somewhat on the market uh, pre-MDD, right, you would definitely be well-established because you were prior to the, the medical device directives. Um, but I think that isn't necessarily what it says. And so I think the one way we've been looking at it in particular is well, uh, relative to your device lifetime. 
So if you have a very short device lifetime and you can basically establish the safety and performance of your device in the general category is well established as well, then I think you can make an argument that you're well established in a relatively shorter period of time. But if you're a long-term and planable device, then I think a long history on the market may mean a longer period of time. I don't know, Nancy, you've done a little bit of those too. What's your thoughts? Yeah, and I think it goes to, right, the same thing, how long the effects of the device last. So if you have a device that is used, any particular adverse events that might occur happen within the first three days after using the device. You can get a lot of history on that device in a, you know, in a couple years, as opposed to an implant that may stay in a person for over 30 years. So we've been kind of looking and using that justification that the useful life of the device, the time it would take to identify any of those adverse events has passed and we have enough information to support that. I mean, I think if you look like maybe some additional information to help understand that, it's not just time on the market though, because if you look at the spinal disc classification, um, they say basically dynamic stabilization devices or total disc replacements, which wouldn't fall into that category, are not well established, whereas fusion devices could be well established. But spinal disc replacements have been on the market since I think the early 2000s, you know. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, it could mean many things. So just because you're on the market for 15 years and you think that's a long time, you still need to meet the other criteria and be able to make a good argument that your device is well established for that particular indication, if that makes sense. I think what this proves is that, what this proves is that um, there's no one answer that will fit everything. So you gotta look at it on a case by case basis against those criteria established in the um, in the guidance document and in the context of state of the art. Yeah, yeah and the other I thing is, you know, as Ibm said on the state of the art, you know, it, the guidance talks about, you know, if the generic device group has a well-known safety profile. So you would also have to look at other devices, you know, competitive devices that are in that same group. And um, that information isn't always easy to come by in the public databases. I mean, you can get it through the through the MOD database, through product codes, which are you know, somewhat analogous to generic device groups, not exactly the same, but it would give you the same type of information. So I think if you're building that argument, you have to consider other things within the state of the art and data on those other devices. So how does this categorization of wet or non-wet impact the device? Like, What, what does it mean? Nancy, what, you wanna start? If you have, if you have a non-wet device, then basically the notified body is going to look at that file. They're not going to do a sampling of it. It's 100% of those non-wet devices are going to get the full look. So even though you might not be a class three, you're basically your technical documentation is going to be treated just like a class three. It's going to be looked at it in its entirety. Um, so it really, if you've got large families of devices that are falling into this 2B category, you definitely it's worth the effort to try and demonstrate that they're wet so that you don't have to go through quite as many reviews in a short amount of time, particularly as you convert to MDR files. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a couple, like the way the MDR is, the wet basically talks about conformity assessment, which Nancy was talking about, and that's for class three and implantables that are wet, they would have a different sampling 
or they could be classified as a lower classification, for instance, with the spinal devices. Um, but then for clinical evaluation, they originally said, you need to have a clinical investigation for class three and implantables, except if it's a wet and it has that list of devices. So that's like in the MDR where it impacts you. If you go to that MDCG guidance, it kind of opens it up a little bit more with regard to the clinical evaluation. I think this is still maybe not quite clear is it almost gives you a different, I don't want to say pathway, but you can rely on more data than maybe you normally would have uh, other data sources for wet versus non-wet. So in every case, you're always going to have to have sufficient clinical evidence. And normally in a clinical evaluation, you could go with doing a clinical investigation. You could rely on clinical literature data for your device or an equivalent device. Um, and then, or you could do clinical data is not deemed appropriate, which is often called the performance pathway. Now with the wet, you might not be falling into that clinical data not deemed appropriate, but if you can make an argument you're well-established, you could potentially rely on other data sources such as clinical data from similar devices, non-clinical testing, and all these other accumulative assessment of all these things. Because what I've seen is that the notified bodies, if you're in the clinical data route, they want to see data on your device, your device only, or an equivalent. And they you, they look at the other data, but in order to prove your indications, they want to see data on your device. Whereas this well-established technology argument almost opens it up so you can rely more heavily on other sources of data as well. So it gives you sort of a mechanism that you could potentially leverage, whereas before there was no you know, other mechanism to leverage. Mm -hmm. So what if the notified body rejects your categorization as wet? What do you what do you do next? Ron, the start? <laughs> yeah, that's not fun, right? So yeah. yeah, I mean, along with that, I mean, whenever you're presenting this type of argument or any argument at all, um if you if you've seen gaps, I mean, you should have a, a PMCF plan and you know, PMS plans that kind of cover the ongoing, you know, monitoring of your device. So those things should have been submitted along with with, with the clinical evaluation, right? So I think you need to um, start looking at that. Um, and again, if you can at least make um, some of the argument, you know, it's been on the market and maybe it's even been through a few certification cycles. So there's history, even with the notified body. Um, I think that's another way of looking at it in terms of coming up with, you know, that, that could help define the extent of your PMS or PMCF plan. So if it's been around long enough, maybe the PMCF doesn't have to be as rigorous. And if it's a lower, you know, risk device, um, whereas if it's, you know, a little higher risk and hasn't been around for a while, then you're probably not going to get through that route anyways. So presumably the notified body will provide you with a reason why they are not accepting your wet argument. And I think um, to Ron's point, you've got to provide robust set of arguments in support of your claim to be wet and it's in your interest to do that because as John earlier explained if you can demonstrate that you are wet clearly um, the burden of proof the evidence you need becomes lower you can now gather a whole bunch of things ranging from maybe literature reviews coupled with something like surveys etc etc to demonstrate compliance so the key thing is don't just go with if it may a one reason to claim wet look for a pretty broad collection of 
data to support your argument and make it difficult for the identifier body to say no. <laughs> what if they still say no and you feel strongly that it is wet? Like, what, what, what's your path then, Ibum? <laughs> you have to convince them. <laughs> They're the notified <laughs> body, you have to convince them. And Keep trying. Yeah, in this day and age. I mean, the thing is, don't get too emotional and get too combative. Understand the reasons why they're saying no. Uh, have have a meeting with them, seek clarification, and see if you can go back and provide additional data that will make them change their opinion. Because under the MDR, it's going to be much more difficult to switch notified bodies. Mm -hmm. And notified bodies have to report if a manufacturer withdraws the application. So there are ramifications, which is why you need to make sure you're on the same page with your notified body moving forward. Yeah, I think it's it's going to be interesting because if everybody bombards the notified bodies with this with this argument on every every other device, then they're going to draw a line at some point because you know they're going to have to kind of compare the different submissions they're getting and say, well, you know, these these may be okay, but I don't think it's going to work for something else. So, and again, it goes back to the MDR. I think initially they'll be pretty strict on all aspects of the MDR, including this. So they may. They may be really obstinate and say, "Hey, it's only these sutures and clips and widgets and whatever's in that list." Um, and then, you know, little by little, they may start letting these other things come in. So I didn't mean to make it sound so bleak, but um, <laughs> I'm sure they don't. They're not going to make it easy either way. So. I'm wrong to add to that point. You're right, because it's not just the notified body. You have to uh, please. What about the permission and the competent authorities? Mm -hmm. The notified body may say yes if the authorities in Europe decide, no, we don't accept this argument, then your continuous certification could be at risk. So this is why the more data you can gather to support your claim to be wet, the better. Because we don't want the pendulum to swing whereby they have this very restrictive list that as we had under the MDR, whereby they said they could all uh, add to the list or take away from the list Mm -hmm. uh, we don't want that. We'll rather have a situation where, within reason, okay, within reason, you could you could justify your device being wet. I I would also say like whether or not they say wet versus non-wet. I think from a conformity assessment perspective, it's pretty clear how that would impact you. From a clinical evaluation perspective, it's less clear. And what it ultimately would mean is what type of data and what level of evidence they're expecting from you for your device. But I would say regardless of whether they accept the wet argument or do not, you should still sort of have the same clinical evaluation report, right? Because you still want to look at clinical data from similar devices and do a thorough assessment of them. You still want to look at the standards and those sorts of things that you're complying with. And you still want to summarize all the non-clinical testing for yours that applicable to safety and performance, all your PMS data, as well as any clinical literature on your device. So you're still doing that. Ultimately, it's what weight the notified body will put on those various data sources that will impact whether or not if they say wet versus non-wet, they might put more emphasis or allow you to put more emphasis on similar devices versus non-wet, they're going to be expecting more on your device. And so I think it ultimately, your clinical evaluation should look largely the same. It's just what 
how much data you need on your device. And so it could impact your certification, obviously, because if you don't have anything on your device, they and they don't weight the similar device data as much of your non-clinical testing, you could be in some trouble. So I would definitely recommend, regardless, getting a strong clinical data on your own device right now under MDD if you can through PMC. Uh, absolutely. The, the, the core data set, the robustness of your data to support your device is almost non-negotiable. In practical terms, it's like this. If you have a 2B that is considered non-wet, guess what? It's going to be treated as a class 3 today, whereby you will need to have a separate product certificate to cover that particular device. Versus if it were wet, then it could be subjected to sampling as a generic device group, which for the company would be far less burdensome. So that's where the, you know, these are the practical things that will impact manufacturers. Yeah, and it's not, I mean, it's not a, it's not a conformity assessment route in and of itself. So there's not a, there's not an annex or a route that you can submit this and say, hey, I want this considered under wet, you know, it's either gonna, it's going to go by the classification and whatever annex conformity assessment route you pick, and then it's kind of woven into that. So it's not a separate pathway all by itself. Do uh, do any of you have an example of where the notified body rejected a wet? I do. <laughs> so, and it really it happened in the application process, right? The uh, company submitted it, identified it as a wet technology. Notified body came back and said, we don't, we don't agree with that, right? And so we did, we put to, to Ivam's point, we put together the argument. And some of the things we did, we had to, looking, the device itself hadn't been on the market that long, but that type of product had been on the market. So we did the search of the FDA database. We found um, evidence of when the first product was cleared under that product code. We then looked for literature to support that it was sold in Europe. Um, we also went back to old, this is where the Wayback Machine, right, on the internet mm -hmm. is helpful. We found old treatment guidelines where they first introduced that technology and as state-of-the-art at that time, right, and it had been through and out in the marketplace for a long time. So we were able to renegotiate that one and get it established as a wet device, which was really helpful because they had a lot of products that fell in that category and now it allows them to do the sampling of those instead of looking at each one yes right that's great okay so we're going to do some audience questions uh especially people love to submit examples to see what we think if they're wet or not uh this first one came in by email just before so i will read it um i would like to understand if my device is wet it is an acid concentrate for hemodialysis. It not only exists in the market since 1970, but also there is an EN harmonized standard with presumption of conformity with ER1 to 6, amongst others. Related to this family of products, a new EN ISO standard that helps to ensure the safety and performance of the device in a European pharmacopeia monograph. What do you guys think about that? Is that wet? Ooh, who wants it? Sure, I'll take it. So yeah, I would just, right, we're going to walk through the four questions that fit the definition. Is it simple? Is it common? And is it stable? Right? And it seems like it, you know, on the surface without digging into the, the actual contents, it sounds like a pretty simple solution. It's well-defined. It's been in, the, you know, so we'd say that, right? 
is there well-known safety and performance with it? And we'd say, yes, this has been out there, right, for a long time. Mm -hmm. The fact that it's in the pharmacopeia and the fact that there are established standards mean that it is well-defined in terms of what's required to meet those criteria. And then your long history on the market, you're looking at 50 years. Uh, so pretty long, I think it's worth making the argument. I, I think the toughest one in this case is gonna be that simple common and stable design. Um, because what we're seeing, and this is where we failed with a notified body where we tried to make the wet argument, is they said, no, it's not similar to those wedges, screws, plates, connectors that are defined in the MDR. So, you know, it, it's definitely worth trying to make the argument, but I think you can also look at the alternative, right? That maybe clinical evidence isn't required in this case because of the known standard and you would go that performance route. Okay, sounds good, Nancy. Here's, wait, before I go to the next one, there's an easy question for for John, can you please share the title of the spinal position paper referenced in the beginning? Yes, I have it open right now. If you Google uh, like NB position paper spinal classification, it should pop up. It'll be a PDF, but it's the joint NB dash position paper on spinal classification per the MDR. Okay. Perfect. Okay, next example to try. Would a device like a pacemaker be considered a well-established technology? There are variations in pacemakers, but the technology has been around for over 30 years. Ibum's smiling, so what do you think, Ibum? I don't think so. <laughs> it's a high-risk device. They don't call me high-risk than a pacemaker. It's an implantable device, so I don't think so. I, I think that the top part of that argument is similar to those screws, staples, wedges, dot, 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 right? And so I think that's going to be the hardest argument to make for a lot of these devices. And it's really unclear right now how rigorous or they're going to basically say, well, that is not similar to these similar devices. And the other part of that, if you look at that notified body position paper, on spinal classification, they talk about devices with multiple components, I think, is one of the things that they consider non-wet, and they use uh, an oh. expandable cage as an example. Yeah. And so that definitely has multiple components. So I think it's going to be that argument for the first part of the definition, is it simple? And Correct. is it similar to those? And, and only time will tell whether or not they accept these types of things, but I think it's going to be harder for those types of things. I don't know, Nancy, what do you think? John, John, let me tell you this. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Just on criteria number one alone, pacemakers will not qualify. Relatively simple, common and stable designs, and little evolution. If I showed you a pacemaker design from 30, 20, 10 years ago, you will see the evolution that's been going on. Right now, the latest technology is leadless pacemakers. How could anybody argue that a leadless pacemaker that was first placed on the market about five years ago is similar to the one that St. Jude put out God knows how many years ago? I don't think that will work. Well, let me yeah, ask a question on that. Can somebody tell me what similar means? No one can. Whatever <laughs> <laughs> I want it to mean I, when I'm writing my justification. There's another NDCG guidance on that, yeah. <laughs> when you look at the 2020-6, it um, 
you know, it says the common features of the devices which are wet are that they all have, and then you get into the four bullet points. To me, it's like mm -hmm. they have to have all of them. So you can't pick and choose. Well, it's been around for a long time, but if it's not simple, to Ibum's point, um, you know, and I think of things mm -hmm. that have probably microelectronics or even software in them, um, I, I can't see, you know, anything getting past, you know, the, the wet technology argument, even if they've yeah. been around for a long time. Even the battery design has changed significantly over years, you know. So I think that is that is at the far end of the spectrum. Yeah. Okay, let's try another one. Next one. <laughs> we have an implant with device lifetime of six months, mm. subliminal fixation similar to wiring, which aligns with time for fusion. The implant may remain in place at the surgeon's discretion. Can we establish our long history on the market based on the six-month lifetime statement rather than the years of implantation? The implant isn't serving the intended use after fusion occurs. Does that make sense, or would you like me to read it again? Makes sense, right? Do I? I think from the the performance, right? That's where you're. That third bullet, you're basing that on the six months. The problem is bullet number two, the safety of it. And so if you're leaving it in the body, how do you know without some real life experience beyond six months, what the long-term effects of that are? So I think that one makes it, now you may be able to show, right? That they've been in people for a long period of time, um, but if it's truly a new device, you know, six months old or nine months old or two years old, you probably don't have enough data at that point to establish that safety. Okay. Next one. If you have a class two that was approved via equivalence under MDD, but will not meet the criteria under MDR, for example, no access to the competitor file, do you think wet is a possible way forward based on similar product, preclinical data, PMS, et cetera? Well, it depends what class two it is. If it's a class two B implantable, well, then you need that contract. If it's a class two A, then I don't believe you need a contract in place between the equivalent device manufacturer and yourself. You still do need to have sufficient information to establish equivalence. And so I think it really depends on what class you actually are, right? And whether or not it's implantable in the, to have that contract. Now, I think I usually think of equivalence, does it pass the sniff test? Like, is it really equivalent or not? Because you will have usually a clinical person reviewing this and they usually call out and they're really savvy about knowing the differences between these things. Is it the same material or not? If it's a different material in contact with the body, it's not equivalent and i've learned that lesson the hard way many times so <laughs> um and but it's always a possible pathway so if it is meets those four definitions you still want to make the best argument you can for your device so i would absolutely pull data for similar devices and um, establish the safety and performance of the general device category for your device whether or not they accept it as wet or not non-wet so okay. if you manage to get on the market via equivalence, even under the MDD, the requirement is you then complement that with some good PMS data, including PMCF. So it begs the question as well, how solid is your PMCF data? Okay, next one. 
By the way, there's someone named Gina who wrote in a question that says the algorithms are different. I'm not sure. I think maybe part of your question is missing. You could re-put it back in. Probably, uh, next. probably in relation to pacemakers, I guess. Maybe. Oh, maybe she was just talking about our pacemaker discussion. Okay. Um, next one. Hmm. Our external consultant says we should not reference the MDCG 2020-6 in the CER for meeting the wet criteria. I think we should. What do you think? <laughs> A little bloated. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I'm struggling with that one right now. So we're actually working on something where um, a writer proposed putting that in there and it made me a little uncomfortable because first of all, I'm not sure if it meets the criteria. And second of all, you know, we're not sure how this is going to be submitted, you know, in, in what conformity assessment route. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think if, if they're, if they're generally recognized, you know, guidances, um, I think you can do that. But again, it's, it depends on the robustness of your argument. Um, we've done other CERs where we've taken a similar pathway and never called it wet or anything like that. We just relied on the data that we had and built as good an argument as we could. So um, I, I think you could do it either way. Yeah, I, I maybe I'm not appreciating the downside of referencing these things in the CER. But, you know, first, I think the to keep in mind is that MDCG is intended for MDR, and they only mention the GSPRs in there. They don't talk about essential requirements or MDD. And so that's one thing to keep in mind when you're making this argument is that it's really an MDR argument. I guess you could maybe try to apply it to MDD, but I don't think it's really technically appropriate. So with MDD, you're kind of stuck with the routes that you have under MDD. Um, John, so that's I, because... This whole document is has been written for devices that are currently C marked. So if you're already on the market under the MDD, then this doesn't apply. We're really talking about when you transition or as you transition to MDR here. Yeah. I would probably feel more comfortable referencing the actual MDR articles that apply because that's ultimately what's going to be enforced, not the MDCG. I was going to make but, that point. That is the law. That that is we, the one. That is the one you must always go back to because even the notified bodies, when they write you up, will only write you up against the law, not against the standard. But I would kind of, on the contrary though, we always reference MedDev 2.71 Rev 4. That's not law, but that's the general state of the art and accepted process. We almost always re reference ISO 10993 or you know the biocompatibility standards. You can make references to yep. harmonize standards, to guidance documents. What I'm saying is, if a notified body was going to write a non-conformity, they could never write it against a standard or a guidance document. What, I what you disagree, because I've seen them do it. <laughs> that is absolutely wrong, because by law, they can't even, if you are doing an MDR audit, if you are doing an MDR audit, you can only write a non-conformity against either the MDD, AIMD, or, A or MDR, clauses that's it you, I, must, you, can, you, must you, you can certainly quote yeah. uh, guidance documents harmonized standards that you've used to kind of demonstrate compliance you can't do that but for a notified body there's no way you can write against the standard what is the, the, that's why there's a difference between what is the law and the guidance documents well what yeah, they do is you reference it Unless you reference the MedDev or a standard, and then you just don't follow it. So if you're saying we've done this to Rev4 
passport to whatever standard, and then you clearly don't follow that. But then that nonconformity becomes more of a QMS nonconformity, not following your process, and maybe not as much. But I, I've written them that way, so there's always a way to write a nonconformity. Yeah, it usually so they'll reference the MedDev and say this is not compliant with MedDev 271 Rev 4. And so they definitely use it. And it's because most of the time in CERs, people say we comply with MedDev 2.71 Rev 4. Or, and so I think that's the, they're in. But ultimately, maybe to your point, Ibum, the nonconformity is you don't have sufficient clinical evidence, which is written against the MDD or the MDR. So, you know, maybe we're I'd like to say we're both right. How about that? <laughs> I, think, uh, I think that is a great point to end on. We are uh, just over our 30 minutes.